Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and on this week's episode of This Was a Thing, we're going to be looking at four women who collectively were a church secretary, a marketing rep for a major pharmaceuticals company, part of a civil service dynasty, and an actress who had survived the tragic death of her boyfriend. Now, in 1987, all of them ended up being laughing stocks in the press that collectively lumped them all together and officially, yes, officially called that year the Year of the Bimbo. Who were these women and where are they today? Find out on This Was a Thing. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we are looking at the year of the bimbo. Now, just to be clear, folks, this is not an expression that I have come up with. This is an expression that was used in legitimate media sources like Time, Newsweek, The New York Times in the year 1987, which they dubbed the year of the bimbo. So this is not me. In fact, today is a defense for these individuals, four women who got lumped into uh, some pretty bad situations, none of which I think of their own doing. And uh, their their big mistake, like I said, was just knowing men that were not all that good. Now, uh, this was the thing, because we're going to do a deep dive into the lives of four women, not three, as most remember, because some people who remember the year of the bimbo think it's three women. It's actually four women who, if their situations arose in the 2020s, would most likely be treated very differently by the media. These women were the victims of incompetent men and a press that thought it was easier to label them and their beauty than it was to really take a hard look at the men who were behind these women and the problems the women that were in. Men who have all gone on to be widely celebrated by large swaths of people despite their immorality. All these women did, like I said, was have the misfortune of knowing them. Why the press did not call it the year of the schmuck or the year of the asshole or the year of the liar or the year of the cheat or the year of the idiot is beyond me. I don't know why they had to focus on these women. Won't sell as many papes. And that's exactly right. So, folks, this is the year 1987. Now, 1987 was probably the most interesting year of the decade. It was the year the Cold War seemed to finally come to an end. America was riveted by the rescue of baby Jessica and the stock market took its worst dip since the Great Depression. Yet with all these major milestones and tragedies and notable people who made headlines, the Wall Street Journal decided to call 1987 the year in the bimbo. In fact, they decided to call it that a few days after the stock market crashed. Perhaps it was easier to laugh at women than it was to focus on the egregious mistakes of incompetent men in positions of power. Well, who are these bimbos being celebrated? What did they do? And what was a bimbo anyway? Well, ironically, bimbo first meant a male baby. Then in the U.S. during the 1910s, it became a slang term for a brutish man. It made sense because, once again, there is an O at the end of bimbo. It's not bimbo. We think the first time it was used to describe a woman was in 1920 with the great classic hit played at every wedding, bar mitzvah, and school dance this side of the 20th century, 
my little bimbo down on the bamboo aisle. Ooh. I've got a bimbo down on the bamboo aisle. She's waiting there for me beneath the bamboo tree. Believe me, she's got the other bimbo seat a mile. She dances gaily, gaily. She'd be a hit with Barnum Bailey. I'll build a bungalow on the bamboo. 1929 was a big year for the word bimbo because that's when it became synonymous with a woman of questionable virtue in movies like Broadway Melody and, most importantly, the Oxford Dictionary. The French term bimble, which means a plaything, so if you're, maybe that's also where it came from. Over the years, it became known as an attractive woman who was an airhead, not with any substance or intelligence, and perhaps one who used their sexuality to get what they wanted, whether intentionally or unintentionally. People like in film, Marilyn Monroe, Judy Holliday, Jane Mansfield TV, Carol Wayne, Suzanne Somers, countless others. But soon, Bimbo went from describing fictional characters to real people. Real people were the furthest thing away from the definition but men in the press needed a way to label these women. And it came from the suggestion of one of the quote unquote bimbos herself. And that is our first woman that we're looking at today. And that is the woman named Jessica Hahn. Mm. It was Jessica Hahn who brought the word to attention in September of 1987 when she gave a 13 page interview slash spread in Playboy where she loudly exclaimed, quote, this is supposed to be the year of the bimbos, right? So let's start with the fact that I'm not a bimbo. I know that's how people see me, but I am not what I've been made out to be. Someone without thoughts or feelings or explanations. I am a human being. I was done in. I was hurt. The public does not know that I was used and manipulated and hurt physically and emotionally. That was never brought out, and I'm doing it now in a way I know would never get reported in a family newspaper. The story of Jessica Hahn is where we start because, like I said, she kicked off the story with using that quotation. Well, actually, she didn't because that implies that she had a choice, which she does not in this story. If you listen to our episode on Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, those evangelists with a heart of stone, him, not her, then you'll remember Jessica Hahn if you Here's a little refresher. Jim Baker was a televangelist at the height of the religious rights surge to power in the 70s and 80s, and he created the Praise the Lord Ministries, PTL, along with his mascara-wearing wife, Tammy Faye, who was really a Christian. She was actually probably more in line with what everyone was doing yeah. with this besides these guys. Now, Jim Baker was not the most honest, and soon the press began to wonder where all the donation money was going. So they did a little investigating, and they discovered that PTL was paying hush money to a former church secretary, church secretary named Jessica Hahn. In March of 1987, the paper was about to announce that Baker was being a sinner, and it was all because of a woman named Jessica Hahn, whom he had an affair with in 1980 when she was... 20 years old. And the response was, of course, leave it to a harlot to take down an angel person like Jim Baker. And Jim admitted that he'd sinned and he was taken advantage of by a woman that he branded, quote, a professional who knew every trick of the trade, end quote. And people believed him. Han was outed for receiving $279,000 in silence, but when Han heard that the story was that Han had seduced Baker, she came forward bravely and said it was not consensual, that she was drugged and she was raped by Jim Baker and Jim Baker's friend, another man of the cloth, John Wesley Fletcher, both having taken her virginity. And nobody believed her. 
everybody rolled their eyes at her, and she had to recount everything publicly over and over and over and then be criticized for it in the press. Han has said that consistently reliving these details, quote, make the victim twice the victim. She's pretty much going to be, I think, one of the first people that we can look to in the beginnings of the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I know that the Me Too movement is, you know, the late 2010s, early 2020s. However, I think this might be where the origin story for all of that is going to begin. And I know there's people, lots of women who have been in similar situations, but we're just talking one of this national prominence. The media wanted to frame the story. And so the first picture they leaked of Jessica Hahn, the first picture that the public would see of this church secretary was one of her wearing tight black jeans, a black V-neck, and gold chains. And these are some of the quotes that uh, people use to describe her in the press. In the press, busty, chesty, and some even going so far to say, dressed like that, what do you expect? So what I find interesting is that the only uh, sympathetic writers to Han, of which there were very few, those also were women. Those seem to be the only ones in all the research that I've done that showed any sort of sympathy to her. And the mainstream press treated her as a joke. And when she showed up on television, people cannot believe that a woman that was so articulate, shrewd, calm and collected was the same woman who could be the victim of assault. She's too smart for that. She's lying about it. Here she is on the Phil Donahue show. Jim Baker is able to say, see, here's the little girl, the innocent little girl who claims that I this and I that. Now we know the truth. I, and I, I, well, if know. you read a little further, then I could say, see, what about what Jim Baker preaches? You know, what about uh, throwing a woman on a floor and doing what he did to a woman? You know, what he did made me feel dirty. What I did there did not make me feel dirty. I feel right about what happened, I, uh, about the pictures. I chose to do the pictures. That was a choice that I was given. Now, you might be asking yourself, what pictures is she referring to? The picture she's referring to is that Playboy spread where she gave a tell-all interview to Playboy magazine as well as posing nude for it. She knew there was only going to be one place where she would be able to tell her story openly and honestly and in a way that would get a lot of people to read it. No, yeah. And so she went over to Playboy and worked with Hugh Hefner. Like I said, it was a 13-page spread. What happens, though, is is she's absolutely right, which is this: the magazine sells like hotcakes. Everyone buys it. All these people that are so, like, above it all and pure, they all buy it. This was, I mean, this was, like, the biggest story Yes. In the nation at the time. Yes. And because of this, there's a lot of women at this time who feel they don't doubt that what Jessica is saying, but they keep telling her you're hurting your case by posing nude because what you're saying is, is I'm a really pure person and I would never have consensually had sex with two married men or a married or a married man. And so the women, the older women are saying, don't do that, Jessica. You're making it harder for yourself. Here she is on Donahue again with an audience member who's also questioning if this was the right decision. The only thing that bothers me about the Playboy thing is that if this guy really did rape you, and it sounds like rape to me, I've never heard you say rape, but it sure sounds like rape. If he really did, then he should be punished for this in some way. And you're going to you're going to kind of ruin your your credibility and he's not going to you know get what? what he deserves. I've gotten to a place where is anybody or are any of the critics paying my bills? Do I, I know I should care what you think, and I do. 
to a point as I don't want to hurt anybody. But I'll tell you something, everybody is focusing on the pictures and the credibility. I'll tell you something, I lived it and that's enough and I dare anybody here, I dare, I dare any, anybody to live in my shoes for one day. The story is as important as the pictures and the pictures are as important as the story. There were some people who uh, still thought that Jessica was a bimbo and a liar. It was seen on Saturday Night Live with Victoria Jackson's iconic song making fun of Jessica Hahn called I'm Not a Bimbo. You think you can label me, but don't you dare, cause I'm not a bimbo. So I jiggle when I walk. So I then she proceeds to keep singing and doing a uh, striptease at the same time. This is from the Chicago Tribune from an author by the name of Clarence Page, the headline, and Clarence Page is still alive, folks, if anybody wants to oh. give him a tweet, say hi. Dear Jessica Hahn, Bimbo says it all. And he starts off saying, pardon me, Jessica Hahn, if I have a hard time believing you when you say you're not a bimbo. The Page principle of plausible denial holds that whenever people make a bold public declaration of what they're not, chances are very good that that is precisely what they are. Then he goes on to a very, very long diatribe that makes absolutely no sense about Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. So he goes back and he says, so getting back to you, Jessica, when you said, quote, I am not a bimbo, end quote, you immediately walked out onto thin ice and the ice was made just that much thinner by you having said it in an interview accompanying nearly nude photos of yourself in the November issue of Playboy magazine. Not that there's anything wrong with Playboy. It has featured some of the finest bimbos in the world. But you realize that the juxtaposition of your interview with photos of yourself wearing a little but your birthday suit makes it a little hard to believe you when you say you only did it in order, quote, to tell my side of the story. And then she starts to capitalize, you could say, get her story out there. It depends on how you want to view it. She got work on a morning radio show. She got fired from that pretty fast. She made the talk show circuit. This is her with Geraldo and John, who she accused of uh, raping her. And he has some very interesting thoughts. Do you say she then voluntarily made herself available to you? Yes. Jessica? John, Geraldo... Why didn't I, she scream? I, I, Why didn't she run down the hall and get the police? Why didn't she go down in the lobby John, and get... She'll be able to respond. Her rapist is saying, if that's true, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And you can tell she's getting more and more visibly upset. Finally, towards the end, she has a confrontation with this person after people are just in the audience snickering and laughing at her. Can I say something, please? Go ahead, Jessica. I, I got a job doing radio. Now I'm saying this on national TV. I'll tell you what I make under four hundred dollars a week okay i work till 4 a.m every morning my mid my shift is seven to midnight i did a rock video 22 hours i came home and went to an empty hotel room i work okay i do not pass an offering plate around i am not the issue i was not a preacher okay and that's the point it should not matter if i did a porn movie or if i posed in playboy which i thank god for that I had Playboy, but what I'm saying is I work for a living, okay? If I turned a bad situation into something good, that's my prerogative. But John, you're sitting around and you raped me eight years ago and you continue to do so. You know, it's eight years later, only this time I'm fighting back and I'm not, I'm not hiding it. 
And if you people out there want to believe him, then I feel sorry for you. I really do. There's something wrong here. You decide. Wow. Yep. She had an episode of Married with Children. She acted. Then she dated Ron Levitt, who created the show Married oh, with Children. Wow. She did the 1993 Celebrity Centerfold video. Han became a punchline. The justification for Predators because they saw how she was degraded by her attire and demeanor. And that somehow gave Jim Baker a free pass to alleged assault. We have to say alleged on here. So while Jessica is currently living in Arizona with her husband, having faded into obscurity, she said, quote, if somebody's hurting you, you've got to come out and say something because they'll keep doing it because they think they're above you and better than you. That's not the truth. And it will affect your life if you don't. It will affect you later on in life. So that's Jessica Hahn. She's the first person that people consider to be the, the bimbo because she's the one who said the word a little bit earlier in Playboy magazine. The second person that we're going to be looking at right now is Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall. Do you know Fawn Hall? Have you heard of Fawn Hall? No. Any relation to Monty? No relation to Monty Hall. Oh, okay. No, then no. No. Ronald Reagan was known as the Teflon president because anything that was thrown at him just seemed to slide right off. But towards the end of his second term, it looked like Reagan might have to resign due to three words. Nancy Reagan swallows. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Iran-Contra affair. Oh. No, he didn't sleep with some woman named Iran-Contra. But he did do a lot of sleeping, which might have led to this mess. I'm sure we will cover the Iran-Contra on a future episode. So I'm going to give you just a very basic explanation of the scandal. America sold arms to Iran. Then America took those funds and gave them to Nicaraguan Contras who were fighting to topple the Sandinista government. Okay, that's what was going on. But America never approved this, nor were they ever told about it. It was being done behind closed doors by a whole group of Reagan officials without the country's knowledge. And the Boland Amendment specifically prohibited funding the Contras. So this was illegal and problematic on many levels. Reagan came out and said he had no knowledge of any of it, meaning either A, he was a liar and participating oh, yeah. in illegal activities or B he was not really running the country and it was really being run by his staff. Either way, not very good for Mr. President. So the country needed an answer and the tower committee was created to have hearings and investigate what happened. A parade of witnesses, officials and higher ups all paraded in front of the committee. And of course it was all televised. It was the summer blockbuster. Each one of these men saying they knew nothing and it was all done behind Reagan's back and they were really sorry about it. But the star of the trial was a man who had fallen his own sword to protect the president, a real winner, named Oliver North. See, North was part of the National Security Council, and he admitted to being involved in the selling of arms. Heck, he was really involved. He defended his actions by stating that he believed in the goal of aiding the Contras, despite what the government has said. He admitted shredding government documents relating to these activities because the CIA director suggested he do so. He also testified that the National Security Advisor, Robert McFarlane, ha asked him to alter official records, to delete references, to direct assistance to the Contras, and that he'd help. Now, Mr. North, or Colonel North, is a very busy man. He can't do all the shredding, so he asked his secretary to do that. Of course. And that's where we meet another, quote-unquote, so-called bimbo named Fawn Hall. Fawn Hall came from a family that prided itself in government service. Her mom worked for McFarlane, actually. And Fawn was no different. She worked in clerical positions for the Navy, the Pentagon, then finally over at the NSC in 1983 to work for Ollie North. She was only 25 at this time. Remember how young, okay. by the way, 
all of these women that we're talking about are. As the Iran-Contra plot was underway, Fawn, who held a fierce loyalty to her boss, did whatever he said without question. She altered documents, shredded documents, hid documents in her clothes to bring to North after he wasn't allowed back in the building. Oh my God. She was also responsible for some of the transactions and, like all of us, got some numbers confused and accidentally wired $10 million from the Sultan of Brunei to a random Swiss businessman instead of the Contras. What? Yes. It's just crazy to think, like, in 1983, you know what I mean? Like, how, like, it was like, wait, how, what do I do? Okay, well, I might as well just use this computer thing, and <laughs> okay, I'm not trained on it at all, but I guess let's if I, happens. yeah, let's just see what, I'm sure, there's nothing that can go wrong. I mean, it is $10 million I'm transferring. Let's just go for it. So, the hearings were televised in the summer of 1987, and day after day were the same sad, angry old men paraded in front of the camera to speak to other sad, angry old men. So when Fawn appeared, the media had a field day. Finally, there was some sex in this thing. Seriously, <laughs> that was that was what was said. She oh testified for two days. And why, when she was asked by the senators, why did you do this? Here's what her response was. Sometimes you have to go above the written law. Sometimes you have to go above the written law. Not the best answer. She was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony. When she was done testifying, she went back to the Navy, but not for long because she got picked up by William Morris and uh, tried a media career, but she was persona non grata. Then she moved to L.A. and tried to model, and that didn't pan out. And she got married to former manager Danny Sugarman of the Doors, who introduced her to crack cocaine. Oh, my God. Here is Fawn in the early 90s. I'm a grateful addict because I lived, because I would not... Somebody said, would you like to do this again for all that you learned? No way. No way. So now she, I think she, she's a recovering drug addict. God bless her. Now, Oliver North, who recklessly ignored the laws of the government because he just didn't agree with it. Well, North got a three-year suspended prison term. He ran for the Republican Senate in Virginia and got a record-shattering $20 million in contributions. He founded the Freedom Alliance with on-air promotion from Sean Hannity that is now under investigation to see if they where they actually donate the money to. He served as president of the NRA, hosted his own radio show, TV show, appeared on JAG and Wings, consulted on Call of Duty, and received story credit for an episode of The Americans. What? I <laughs> wonder if he and Fawn have the same agent. Now, Fawn, who was doing what her boss asked her to do, her military boss, is working in a bookstore. Maybe for minimum wage, she can stock one of Ollie's 20 published books on the shelves. So that's number Jesus. two. Jesus. Top of the morning to you, Ray Hebel. Top of the morning to you, my little shillelagh. Now I feel uncomfortable. Have you found my lucky charms? Oh, not yet, but I haven't looked on all Patreon.com yet. What is a Patreon? Well, it's a place where all of our loyal listeners can go and donate a dollar or two or five to help us keep this podcast going. And now how does one do that, my little Warwick Davis? Little leprechauns can head on over to Patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com. <laughs> and search for 
before this was a thing. The podcast and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing. And you get annually 26 more episodes that the general public does not even get. And don't worry, it's going to be even more than that. Ooh, faith and begara. Faith and begara over to Patreon to donate money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling ya. Third lady I'd like to introduce you to, and this is the top three that people always seem to remember. They always seem to remember Jessica Hahn. They seem to remember Fawn Hall. And this third woman, Donna Rice. I got to get more chairs. Jeez. I'm sorry. Ladies, you okay? Wrong place, wrong time, Donna Rice. That's the story of Miss Rice, who in 1987 unwittingly helped a massive turnaround in the political landscape. In 1984, America was gearing up for the election between Ronald Reagan, the incumbent, and whomever the Democratic nominee was going to be. Now, the contenders were quite strong, and one of the most intelligent, charismatic, and driven senators was Gary Hart from Colorado. Mm. Now, Hart was not nationally known, which made him pale to former Vice President Walter Mondale, who secured the nomination instead. Now, not to worry, Hart would run again in 1988, and he was sure to win because it was all but official. Hart would be the Democratic nominee, and the Republican nominee was most likely going to be Vice President at the time, George Bush, who himself was struggling a bit. People saw him as weak, he was wimpish, and flip-floppy on his involvement in Iran-Contra. If it was Hart versus Bush, then Hart would easily become the next president. Sorry, Republicans. Someone else is coming in. In December of 1986, Donna Rice met Gary Hart at her boyfriend's New Year's Eve party in Colorado. Now, Donna Rice attended the University of South Carolina, was part of the Honor Society, and holds a BS in biology. While she took small acting roles here and there, she was primarily making her money working for Wyeth Laboratories as a marketing representative. Unfortunately, when her name breaks out in the press, they describe her as struggling actress, failed actress, aspiring actress. Of course. She literally did some side work, but her main job was working at Wyeth Laboratories. Hart's last few weeks of December of 86 were a little bit rough as a private investigator followed him to the home of a woman and he was seen exiting the following morning, allegedly. So Hart was already in some hot water, especially with his wife, I'd assume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, while they were at the party together, Rice and Hart got to discussing fundraising and Rice's interest in it. As 1987 kicked into gear, it was clear that Hart was going to be the Democratic nominee and the Republicans should get a last look at the White House because they're not going to be there for some time. Nervous Democrats and Republicans began to amp up the idea that Hart was a womanizer. And if you can't trust him in his marriage, could you trust him to run the country? Now, to make matters worse, Hart doubled down on the accusations and challenge reporters, quote, if you don't believe me, follow me around. You'll be very bored. Oh, God. Now, on the same day that story appeared where he's like, hey, follow me around, came another story. In late April, reporters were just sitting in their office at the Miami Herald when the phone rang and an anonymous tipster said, on May 1st, Hart's mistress will be going from Florida to his house in D.C. Follow her. So, unbeknownst to Rice, who had only told pe two people she was going to D.C., reporters tailed her on the flight and then to Hart's townhouse, where they allegedly never saw her leave. Now, there was a back door that was 
also very accessible. So she could have easily left through the back door and they yeah. never saw her. But they said they just never saw her leave. Soon the story broke and Rice was quickly identified. She said she was up there to discuss fundraising. Everyone had different opinions. And suddenly Donna had to explain herself to the world. Ironically, the papers didn't mention her degree or her job, just that she was a bimbo actress trying to fuck her way to the top. Here's someone that had actually some sympathy for her. This is an interview she has with Barbara Walters. You go to Aspen over Christmas? I'm an avid snow skier. You're young, you're pretty, and you go to a party at Don Henley's house, rock star Don Henley. Right. right. Was he a particular date, friend, what? I've dated him, yes. Okay. And at the party, you're introduced to Gary Hart. I met him there, yeah. Did you know who he was? Didn't really pay much attention. There were so many people there, and we were involved in serving food and whether or not there were enough glasses and that kind of a thing. Just... So it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. It was one more hello, hello. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Hart's numbers drop and he bows out of the race, leaving Michael Dukakis to take the nomination and then lose the White House to George H.W. Bush. So it seems like the Republicans got what they want. Hart has said that he thought political operative Lee Atwater, the mastermind behind the Bush campaign, was the one who orchestrated the conspiracy. Now, no one wanted to associate with bimbo Donna Rice. Who is this power-hungry, dumb actress? Why did she have to seduce Gary? Couldn't she keep her trap shut to her friends? Unfortunately, Donna really should not have trusted the friends she had. Lynn Armand and Dana Weems, we should always mention their names, because they got their hands. First of all, one of them was the one, I think it was Dana Weems, who called the Miami Herald. Oh, and was like, of hey, course. go follow. They got their hands on some photos from a big party cruise that was taken, which featured a photo of Gary Hart wearing a shirt saying Monkey Business, because that was the name of the ship they were on, and Donna Rice sitting on his lap. And on June 2nd, even though Hart was out of the campaign, the National Enquirer posted it on their front page. The photo cost $25,000, by the way. They had to pay $25,000 for this. The headline, quote, Gary Hart asked me to marry him. Here's Donna Rice discussing her reaction to that Enquirer article. But what was it like for you just seeing your face in the old-fashioned newsprint? Well, it wasn't anonymity at all. I, in fact, what, what's even worse is when the the real news um, goes tabloid and that's what happened to me and and so it, it's very difficult and perceptions begin to form and it's hard to break through those labels and those perceptions and and for me it was like a daily thing for about a year and a half both Rice and Hart denied any of this, and while Hart went off to think about his life in Ireland, take a nice little vacation for himself, Donna Rice resigned her job and turned down countless offers to be in movies, TV shows, give interviews, although she did star in a bunch of No Excuses Jeans commercials in 1987. No Excuses Jeans I didn't jeans even know that was commercial. a lot or anything. Gary Hart briefly <laughs> joined the race again at the end of December of 1987, but it was a no-go. He went on to get a PhD from Oxford, be on Homeland Security Commissions, floated another presidential run into. 2004, held an endowed professorship at the University of Colorado and served as a special envoy to Ireland. I heard he was well endowed. Well endowed. Ooh. And uh, Rice, on the other hand, she resigned her job, but I think, yeah, and uh, had lived underground for seven years trying to get a sense of who she was and what she would become. She was known as part of the year of the bimbo. Luckily, she's forged her own path in recent decades and works hard to make the internet safe for families through the organization. Enough is enough. If you can't look at porn on McDonald's Wi-Fi, that's because of Donna Rice. 
Seriously. Great. Now, not surprisingly, Donna Rice isn't into Democrats anymore, uh, is a big supporter of Donald Trump, and led the boycott of Teen Vogue when they published an article about how to have safe anal sex. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. It's nice to know we're at a time where we can judge Donna Rice for her own words and actions. She is her own person. So for her, let's say this year is the year of the prude. Calm okay. down. Don't send letters. And speaking of letters... I'm going to introduce you to the last person who gets left off this year of the bimbos list, but actually started the year. That is Vanna White. Yes, the letter turner herself got swept up into the year of the bimbo craze for having the audacity to write a biography of herself at the height of the Wheel of Fortune craze. Now, if you've never seen Wheel of Fortune, it's quite simple. It's Hangman, and when you correctly guess a letter, Vanna would flip the letter in the puzzle. Never really talk, just flip the letter. Not the most demanding of jobs, but she is a fixture of television, and her name's so unique that, of course, people expressed an interest in her as she never really spoke on the show. They wanted to know more about Vanna. Of course, she can write her own autobiography. Basically, Vanna White grew up in South Carolina and then went to school at the Fashion Institute of Technology in Atlanta and found work there as a model. She made it to California in the early 80s, didn't really do much of anything of substance until 1982 when Wheel of Fortune was looking for a substitute letter turner to replace the outgoing Susan Stafford. Well, Vanna got hired along with two other women. They would rotate the letter turning, but within two months, the other two women were gone and Vanna Vanna took over. Audiences loved Vanna White. She was warm, looked genuinely excited, and was actually part of the show, as opposed to other game shows where the model just showed off a prize. Vanna always looks genuinely happy or sad for the person, and when you did it right, she claps for you. Vanna seems like a lovely person. Who's never heard, just seen. In 1987, Vanna decided to change all that and increase her publicity and visibility outside of Wheel of Fortune. Unfortunately, before she can control that, in May of that year, she was also naked on the cover of Playboy and everyone was shocked, including... Vanna herself. It seems she posed for provocative pictures a few years earlier to pay the rent, and Hugh Hefner bought those photos and put them on the cover of Playboy without her knowledge or consent. She had signed a release, but was told that they would not do anything with it. Happened them. with Suzanne Summers too. Oh, yes, yes, right. So now she had to go do the TV apology tour explaining how these photos got there. I saw the photos. They're honestly not risque like one of them is her with her back to the camera she's wearing a sweater and she has the bottom of her pants down a little bit so you can see the crack of her butt but it's not like graphic no I don't they're know. not they're, that's the thing is this whole apology tour nowadays and it's like now on like instagram and stuff instagram, the biggest stars many, you know like, on instagram how many asses of your friends have you seen oh i mean tons of them so here she is on a uh, donahue what donahue is doing because you can't see it is he's holding up covers of other magazines which feature vanna on it is anybody hotter in this nation today than vanna white look at this the ladies home journal newsweek Boy, you never promised your family you'd make Newsweek, did you? No. And the cover. And ahem. Playboy. I... You can't be embarrassed by this. I think it's very flattering. Uh, what do we call this? A layout? I don't know what you call it. Well, uh, you I am embarrassed. So about it. Yes, I do. You do? Yes. Why? I'm embarrassed. Look at that cover. Don't look at that cover. You mean uh, the bare bottom? Yes. So is the... But beyond that, everything's okay with you. Well, not really. There's a situation involved there that um, is personal. Uh, regarding your relationship with Hefner? Yes. Uh, he promised you that he wouldn't use them? Is that how this goes? He... 
Well, it started out, I did the shots in, in uh, 1982. Were you starving at the time? Yes, more or less, I was. And I couldn't pay my rent, and I was too embarrassed to ask my father for the money because I was trying to make it on my own and do this, do it on my own. So I posed for these lingerie shots. Mm -hmm. And then they came back a few months ago. They came out, and Hugh Hefner bought them and published them. And he told me he wouldn't publish them because we were friends and this kind of a thing and then other situations happen and they came out so that was the the beginning of everything but it was really her autobiography which was published by warner brothers and promoted like crazy that made people really dislike vanna white the book was called vanna speaks and it was published early in 1987 with crazy promotion and booksellers bemoaning the fact there would not be enough copies to go around. However, at the end, it seemed like a big nothing because it was selling highly only in the areas where Vanna was doing appearances. And that kept that on the bestseller list for two weeks or so. So, yes, she did have a bestseller, but really in only selected areas. I heard that they saved money in printing by uh, not putting any vowels in the book. <laughs> Get the fuck out. <laughs> oh, how dare you? There is no way a person who only turned letters would justify selling copies. And did she even write it? There, there had to have been a ghostwriter, people assumed. Now, I will be honest with you. I did read the book. The book is not incredible. And it features these observations. Pat gets angrier on Wednesdays. Quote, around the house, I try to get the most work done with the least effort. That means washing all my clothes, except things I want to shrink. In bathroom cold water, using vinegar on the bathroom <laughs> chrome to remove soap scum with scrubbing and removing the occasional pet odor from the carpet with a raw onion or ammonia. You can also find a wealth of uses for the most common household products. I clean jewelry with regular toothpaste. It's called Vanna Speaks, but it's just be called Vanna Gives Advice. Now, the book is not all light. She also discusses how as soon as she moved out, her mother died of ovarian cancer and how her boyfriend of five years was killed in an accident. Is she the best writer? No. Is it life-changing? No. But is she a bimbo because she posed for photographs to make money? Photographs today, like we said, that no one would care about. I think she's the first Insta star. Since she was labeled a bimbo for having the audacity of gulp wanting to tell her story, Miss White has appeared in countless television shows, received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, guest hosted Wheel of Fortune when Pat was sick, wrote books on crocheting, created a line of crocheting fabrics, became a patron of St. Jude's Hospital, and successfully sued Samsung for infringing on her personality rights. So the next time you want to call her a bimbo or any of these women a bimbo, you can, in a nod to Vanna White, solve the puzzle and fuck off. Oh. I'd like to buy an F and a U. We'll be right back. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Hey friends, Dick Clark here. And this year I'm going to be rocking out the year of the bimbo on the monkey business down in Florida. That's right, me and some of my favorite people from 1987 are going to be thanking Fawn, Donna, Vanna, and Jessica for making this year of the bimbo so good. And I know something about bimbos. I once went on a date with Anita Bryant. <laughs> and we've got some great guests joining the ladies like Yakov Smirnoff, Prince, Henry Kissinger, Gavin McLeod, Tom Cruise, Sheena E., Paul Oates, The Body of Ava Perone, Halderman and Ehrlichman, Fernando Lamas, and the first duet between Menudo and Mel Torme. Plus, the girls and their boys are going to sing All Lang Sang right at the stroke of midnight. And speaking of strokes, did you know this year that Bonanza's Lauren Green died of a stroke? What a man. Well, Lauren can't be here on New Year's Eve, but you should be for us to celebrate the year of the bimbo here on ABC. ABC. 
Taste is a luxury we cannot afford. Thank you. This was a sketch. As we know now, we are currently dealing with the Me Too movement in which countless women have come forward to discuss the assault and harassment that was given to them in recent years. And now people believe them. Most people believe them, I should say. There's a sense now more of believing the victim, which is what none of these women have gone through, whether it was manipulation, whether it was sexual assault, whether it was just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And once again, you might have an opinion that, yes, Donna Rice and Gary Hart, of course they were having an affair. Or, no, I I don't think that this part of the story is true. That's fine. But at least there's a forum for debating it. All of these women got shut down. And what I still cannot figure out is all four of these men have made huge mistakes. Mm -hmm. All of them. Yeah. And I cannot figure out why they were not considered, why it was not called like the year of the schmuck or year the year of the idiot or the year of the buffoon because men men were still powerful i mean you know what i mean yeah, like it's just I'm, it's it's ridiculous you know what like, i mean why is it such a, a, a i don't understand this blame game and then when you go back and you read what these newspaper articles were saying the number of times within the first description of Jessica Hahn was before they even mentioned she was a victim of assault an alleged a victim of assault either way you want to put it she was busty yeah, it's shameful. You know, nowadays there's such a, a a good trend of most media saying believe the victim. And if there is going to be doubt, it's not going to be in a public forum. It's going to be in a private forum, which is horrible if a friend or a family goes, well, I don't, you know, mm-hmm. someone says something stupid. But can you imagine having been a victim of any one of the situations that these women were going through and even the media is saying you've done something wrong, you've done something to deserve this, you're stupid, and creating the whole narrative around you. Like, like once again, Donna Rice, I don't know if she and Gary Hart had an affair. I don't know. I don't care. Honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. I do not care if a political leader has an extramarital affair mm-hmm. on either side of the aisle. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't care that Donald Trump did it. I don't care that Bill Clinton did it. It's not, to me, it doesn't play any part in my voting for them. Uh, yeah, I don't give a shit, but if they if they have said about family values and, you know, preached that stuff. Oh, that, and, that hypocrisy? Yeah, it, sure. it, there's the hypocrisy of it. Sure. But if they've never really talked about family, I don't care. I don't really, as long as they're doing their job. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I think a that shit. a per, like that's, so, so once again, so the Gary Hart, Donna Rice thing, that's, that is their business. And I would love to hear from listeners if you can think of an example earlier than this, but I was like, this is a, a case to me. Like if somebody said, where did cyberbullying come from? Yeah. I would say it didn't start cyberbullying. It started in print bullying. Yeah. I don't know how people feel today about Jessica Hahn, except because I think now I think now people are starting to understand more what she was saying 30 years ago, mm-hmm. which is I need to do anything to get the attention to tell my story and I'm in control of my body in this situation where I was not in control of my body before. And I think 30 years ago, people just did not understand that and they laughed at it. And now today, I think there's a fuller understanding. Oh, absolutely. I mean, all four of these women, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum or what, you know, whatever their personal beliefs are now, I think all four of them got a really raw deal. Like, especially Jessica Hahn. Like, nowadays, like you were saying, you see it so much more. And so yep. she was almost like 
the first person, I don't know, like she was the first person to show that, you know, I'm in control of my body. I don't know. I just do. I that she needs to be celebrated for like how that's such a movement nowadays. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Comfortable in your own body. And I make my decisions with this. You know what I mean? My own body. It's it's my body. Things have changed for the better. I feel like I'm wondering if I wonder if at some point these four, three or four women will all get together and, and there should be a documentary series about oh, yeah. each of them because, I mean, all of this is fascinating and the fact that it was all in the same year, mm-hmm. in yeah. the same year. So, yeah, so that's our report on the year of the bimbo. The year was 1987. Once again, that is not uh, a term that we have come up with for describing these women. It's a term that the media came up with to describe these women. We don't like it. We don't approve of it. But that's what journalism called... 1987. Do you think in like those books that you see at gift shops that say like 1987, all the things that happened, <laughs> like the cover, the year of the bimbo? I would not be surprised. <laughs> Gas prices. <laughs> oh, like one of those yeah. stupid ones. 236. Like, Bread was a dollar. Yeah. Uh, you want to play a game? Yeah. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. All right, Mr. Schroeder, did you know anything about these four women that we were talking about? No. Vanna White, Jessica Hahn, Donna Rice, no, Fawn Hall. I did. I, you know, I knew who Vanna White was. I knew, I think Thank God. On, Thank God. On, on She's an American patriot. the surface <laughs> level. But, you know, 1987 was the year of the so-called bimbo, but there were also plenty of men who did bonehead things in 1987 Bone. as well. And nobody calls them out on their bonerhead things that they then did as well. Then let's call them out the year of the boner. Let's do it. We're <laughs> going to do it in a little game called Let's Hear It for the Mimbos. Yes. Let's hear it for the Mimbos. Let's give the Mimbos a chance. Uh, these are all about dumb men, men who did dumb, stupid stuff in the year 1987. You guys are working together to answer these questions, so cooperatively is good. Yeah, there's 10. If you get seven right, I don't know. What does that mean? No more no more bimbos? bimbos? No more bimbos. No more bimbos. No more bimbos, bimbos. We all just love each other without labels. Okay, here we go. 1987. Southern Methodist University was accused of multiple violations, including bribing athletic prospects to attend their school, and their 1987 football season was canceled by this body. NCAA? That is correct. Number two. He is found not guilty of involuntary manslaughter of two minors and actor Vic Morrow in 1982. John Landis. Is correct. He is fined $17,500 for ranting at the 1987 U.S. Tennis Open. Pete Sampras? No, 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 uh, no. John McEnroe. Correct, with the save, John McEnroe. Number four, televangelist Jim Baker resigned in 1987 after fraud and sexual assault allegations, leading to a 1990 TV movie titled Fall from Grace, in which Baker was portrayed by this two-time Academy Award winner who is currently facing his own sexual misconduct allegations. It's Kevin Spacey. That and is... Bernadette Peters was Tammy Faye. Correct. If you want to find out more, episode five, season one. Yes. Hello, callbacks. Number five. On August 5th, 1987, Matthew Broderick veered into the wrong traffic lane and collided head-on with a Volvo, killing two people while vacationing in this country. Ireland. That is correct. You're five for five on your 1987 knowledge so far. On September 23rd, 1987, he withdrew from the U.S. presidential race after multiple reports of plagiarism. Joe Biden. That is correct. Really? Oh, shit. Number seven. 
1987, this children's toy mascot surrendered his pipe to become the spokesperson for the American Cancer Society's annual Great American Smokeout campaign. Mr. Potato Head. That is correct. Oh? This music solo act gave us the first ever Rick Roll when his single was released on July of 1987. Rick Ashley. Yeah, Rick Ashley. That is correct. Astley. Astley. I'm sorry, sorry. Astley. Astley. Never gonna give you up. In arranging the illegal weapons sale to Iran and to eventual fund the Contras, this retired U.S. Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel and face of the Iran-Contra hearings mistakenly gave the wrong Swiss bank account number to the Sultan of Brunei. Now, if you were listening, Ray, I mentioned this. Who is it? Was it uh, Laurel's uh, sidekick? Yes. <laughs> Ollie? I need a correct answer. Oliver Nord. Thank you. There are Lieutenant rules. Lieutenant Colonel. All right. And to possibly sweep the category of the Mimbo's 10 for 10, the final question. This is nerve-wracking. World-class Mimbo Warren Beatty starred with Dustin Hoffman in the legendary flop Ishtar, which takes place primarily in this African country. Egypt? Morocco? It is Morocco. Oh! Ten for ten, you Egypt, boys. Morocco. Yeah, that was my stage name. <laughs> at, Congratulations, at down under, Mimbo Thanks. boys. You sure know a lot about the year of the Mimbo. Woo, we appreciate that. That was great. Well Mark. done. Well done, guys. Holy shit! Very were you smart. born in eighty-seven? Eighty-six. Ah, uh, so yeah. you were around. You remember any of this? Yeah, I was uh, one and taking notes. Joe Biden dropped out exactly a week before I was born. What was he plagiarizing? In multiple. One of his speeches. Uh, a couple things he wrote. He's like, I have a dream, man. <laughs> That's not what dream. you can do for your country, folks, man. Oh, hey, hey, folks. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, Ray, thank you so much. If you're interested in what we're doing, I would encourage you to get on Instagram and go to at this was a thing pod. Make an account. Yeah. And uh, you can follow us or you can go to our website, www.thiswasathing.com. Let me get the internet. That's a great idea. Or you could give us some money on Patreon. Let me get a job. Okay. So, folks, thank you so much for listening to The Year of the Bimbo. Hopefully this episode helped vindicate these four fantastic women and the four Sleezos that they Ooh. unfortunately encountered. Sleezo? Should have nice. been, been The Year of the Sleezo. The Year of the Sleezo. That's the subtitle for the episode. Year of the Bimbo slash Year of the Four Sleezo, wiener boys. Mm. Are you hard? Huh? We gotta go. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was A Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was A Thing Podcast. Reach out. We'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was A Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 